This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Today on Office Hours, we have a special guest. We're talking with Dr. Kelly Capping, Associate Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College on Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Kelly is author of Communion with God, the Divine and the Human in John Owen's Theology, and he's co-editor of two volumes on John Owen and Puritan Piety, Communion with the Triune God and the Devoted Life, an invitation to the Puritan classics, among many other titles. Hi, Kelly, and welcome to Office Hours. It's good to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to Reformed Convictions, and how you came to your current position at Covenant College. Yeah, it's good to be here. This is actually like a homecoming for me. I'm originally from Northern California, born and raised in Lodi. That's Creedence Clearwater Revival stuck in Lodi. (laughs) And didn't really grow up in a Christian home, but to make a long story short, basically my freshman year in high school, became involved in the youth group in a Baptist youth group outreach. And came to know the Lord through that. And about several years later, my youth minister started reading Reformed Theology himself, and I became interested in it. And I started using my lunch money as a good geek uh, <laughs> to buy all the, the lectures by R.C. Sprawl and John Gershner and gang. And that eventually took me to Wheaton. I went to Wheaton because I was in a hot tub with some people and said, where's a good Christian college? And that's what they said. And so I went they, there. I, somehow I think they don't. They probably don't use that in the brochure. <laughs> yeah. The, well, they might. They might add some pictures. But um, so I was at Wheaton and continued to read and learn and became pretty convinced in my Reformed convictions. But also I have a, a deep heart and passion for the larger evangelical church. And Wheaton helped reaffirm that. After that, I went to Reform Seminary and then did a Ph.D. at King's and University of London and came to Covenant College kind of a great place. My wife and I had never been there, but have loved being there over the last nine years. Love the students and the faculty. I was at Wheaton from 95 to 97, teaching in the Bible department. So we must have... I left right when you came. You were a wise man. (laughs) (laughs) I heard you were coming, so I had to leave. Exactly. Very good. First of all, tell us what you're working on currently, and then then I have some other questions about your work. Yeah. I knew there were four books I wanted to get out on, Owen and the Puritans in general, but pretty much the things I'm working on now and into the future are pretty heavily involved in constructive theology and modern theology. So I have a book coming out in October with Zondervan called God So Loved He Gave, Entering the Movement of Divine Generosity. It's really an attempt to kind of look at Christianity through the lens of gift, creation, fall, redemption, and how we should live. And I'm working on a book with Bruce McCormick editing on modern theology, mapping modern theology, various and sundry other things that are hanging over me. And if you want to see what Kelly's up to, you can simply Google Kelly Capic Covenant College in your webpage at Covenant College. It's the first thing that comes up. Well, a lot of your research to this point has focused on the Reformed tradition, and particularly as that came to expression in John Owen. And so the first question I have is, why the interest in Owen? What drew you to Owen? That's a good question. I really wrestled through what I wanted to do my PhD in, and for a while I thought it would be philosophical theology. But I realized I really wanted to do theology. I was just scared to do it. I think it's something about, it's one thing abstracted, it's another thing, and this still can come out in the historicizing of things. It's another thing to say so-and-so said, but to put yourself out there and to be constructive. To say what you think is really true and what people ought to believe. Which is, you know, the nice thing I can say, well, John Owen said, and if you're (laughs) mad at that, that's fine, it's Owen. You know, and that's what I do for a living, so I I appreciate that. I know. This means that you're scared, too. Let's just do a little psychology right now. So the listeners will be surprised to hear that about you, but I'm just making the confession, right? 
No, there is a real difference between systematic and historical theology. One of the principles that I try to communicate to the students is that when you're doing history, you're describing. Right. And when you're doing systematics, constructive theology, you're not saying just what is in the same sense. You're saying what people ought to believe. Yeah, you're prescribing. You're prescribing. And that's an important distinction. And frankly, a lot of young writers... And theologians probably shouldn't be prescribing right away. Just because you've earned a PhD, you've demonstrated a set of skills, doesn't necessarily mean that you're ready to start telling people what's what and what's not. I very much agree with that. Some of my mentors, Roger Nicole and Colin Gutton, both in their own way told me, you know, really, you really need to be 50 before you're doing serious dogmatics. You're ahead of the curve. Well, that's partly why I don't do certain things. The most recent book that's coming out in October might start to break that a little bit. But I think that's a general good rule. I think that those of us that are younger need to be careful about that, need to be aware at least. So going back to the original historical question for all of us chickens. Why Owen? (laughs) Yeah, why? I'm sorry I got to stay. That's all right. Here's a reason, because the truth is I became Reformed. But part of what I saw missing in the Reformed community and in my own experience in that was a lack of affection. Mm. And I knew no one would listen to me, but as I read Owen, I found someone who really valued the affections in a pretty robust way. So in many ways, that's what took me into Owen. And only as I really started to get in did I find out, wow, this is a much better decision than I even anticipated. So that's the main theological reason. The other reason is I wanted to do Bavink, but my Dutch wasn't good enough. So Mm. I... So again, it's the fear factor, I guess, sure. this, the theme. Your account of getting into Owen leads to the next thing that I wanted to ask, and that is, as you read John Owen, you encountered him for yourself, and so the question is, what did you find? And I ask that because there are pictures of Owen in the literature that describe him as a forbidding scholastic, and then there is literature that pictures him as a warm-hearted Puritan, so... Which did you find? Frightening, scholastic, and we all know that scholastic theology is soul-deadening, or did you find a warm-hearted Puritan? The truth is, I think you expect a certain answer, but it's going to be a little muddier. (laughs) I find a bit of a mixed bag. And the way I would put it is this. There was a review of several Owen books in an international journal, A Conversation in Religion, and the critique of some of the Owen books was that it was kind of Owen worship. And he didn't say that about mine, and, and I talked to the author about it, but I think he was still worried there wasn't enough critique of Owen. There is hagiography. Yeah, there is definitely hagiography. Now, the reason why I mention that is I learned to love and appreciate Owen, but what I told this author is, I don't actually imagine myself going to the pub with him. Hmm. And that's the best way I can think of it. I have a tremendous respect for him, but sometimes just personality-wise, I'm not so sure we would get along. I actually feel something similar about Calvin. Mm. I I suspect that I don't think he was the ogre that he's sometimes been right, made right. out to be. But now, you know, we've just finished this 500-year Calvin-Palooza right, right. celebration, and some retellings of Calvin have tried to make him into the guy you'd want to go to the pub right. with. I doubt that. Right. The real, the Calvin of history is somewhere in between. Yeah, so I think that's right. And I think that's the case with Owen, too. My respect for him grew with all of the study, but at the same time, there would be times where I would read him and think, you know. But I will say this. I do remember studying and being in England and my wife and I praying that I would have an older mentor. And, you know, one morning over coffee, I was telling her and I said, you know, Owen said this and Owen said that. And she responded by saying, whoa, you're living with this mentor. You know, he's dead, but you think he's alive. But that was really special to realize. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. If there's one thing that you could say that you learned from Owen reading him, what would that be? 
Very difficult to say one. I would say Owen solidified my conviction that the importance of all things are understood through this Trinitarian Mm. understanding. And so I become convinced that the best theology is theocentric. To be theocentric, it must be Trinitarian. Mm. And to be Trinitarian in a biblical way is to be Christ-centered. And Owen really helped me to start working through all of that. And that then has implications for all the rest of my theology. That's interesting because that's very similar to what I found in Olivianus. I started Mm. off asking, all right, Casper, teach me covenant theology. And before he would teach me covenant theology, in effect, he said, first, I have to teach you the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. And he made me, in a way that I wasn't before, a Trinitarian theologian. When I used to teach the doctrine of God, I told the students, you know, the old caricature of Reformed theology is that we started with the doctrine of the decree, and particularly a superlapsarian account of the decree, and then deduced a system. I don't see any evidence of that. But our theology is God-centered. And to be God-centered is exactly as you said, to be Trinitarian. And to be Trinitarian is going to lead us to God's self-disclosure in Christ. What do you think we today, as you look around at the Reformed world and then the broader evangelical world, what is it that we have to learn, particularly about piety, from John Owen? For those two communities you mentioned, they're different things. Evangelicalism at large can really struggle with, it would never use this language, but kind of starting to think of spirituality in terms of works righteousness. We would never use that language. But really, you know, the question is, do you feel that God loves you more because you had your quiet time today. And if not, if you sense that there is a distance between you and God because of the lack of the quiet time, it's a sign of this kind of problem. So I think that's an evangelical struggle to understand real spirituality, and Owen can help us of the security we have in the finished work of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Owen has such a strong doctrine of the Spirit, pneumatology, the person and work of the Spirit. People need to read Owen on that. That's very helpful. On the Reform side, and certainly in some of our camps, I think there's more and more of this glorious recovery of the reality of justification and of our security as justified. But what I'm finding is some misunderstandings then about the real nature of discipleship Mm. and the call to human agency. And Owen is unflinching in his affirmation of the sovereignty of God, but he's also unflinching in this call to our human agency, that our actions matter. And so I think to the Reformed, he can say, you matter. (laughs) And to the Evangelicals, he can say, relax. And both of those matter. One of the things I've been struck by in reading Owen and other Reformed theologians from that period and from earlier periods is their commitment to the ordinary. Mm. It seems to me that much of American religion, especially if Nathan Hatch is correct, is and has been committed since the early part of the 19th century, and I think before, to a quest for the extraordinary, Mm. so that the Christian life and piety gets defined in terms of the extraordinary. Mm. Does that resonate with your reading of Owen at all? Yeah, I think that's right. Although Owen is open, kind of like Edwards, to the extraordinary, you know, again, for contemporary relevance, because in Owen in the 17th century, he's responding to the rationalist on the one hand and to what they called the enthusiast on the other. Exactly. And because he had to fight both those battles, I think it makes his view of spirituality and the spirit very rich. It is very dynamic, but there's an ordinary reality to it. Kelly, when we come back, I want to talk to you about how Owen related the extraordinary to the ordinary. Was Owen an enthusiast, or was he a dead formalist, or was he something else? 
I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Against the rationalists, he wants to say, we don't live in a closed universe. Mm -hmm. And against the enthusiasts, who would have been more or less Anabaptists or versions of it. These were Quakers, Shakers, where that's where the names originated. Exactly. Hyper-sectarians and separatists and so forth. He wants to say, no, there are divinely ordained means by which God works. The world isn't closed, and we can't predicate what God may or may not do, but we do know what he said. And what Owen has to do then is he has to come up with, I, I actually think this is a dissertation waiting to be done by someone. I think Edward's religious affections is heavily drawing upon Owen's pneumatology, his book on the spirit. Edwards hardly quotes anyone, but he does quote Owen there. And basically what he's trying to do is figure out how can you question these experiences without rejecting them all? And so he comes up with some basic things like, well, the Holy Spirit really does things, but the spirit always points to Christ. The spirit of Christians is the spirit of creation, so he does not belittle your human faculties, your mind and will and your body. He enhances them, and it doesn't belittle your mind and that kind of thing. Those are helpful categories for us in our day to try and navigate these things. Here I'm going to put my cards on the table. Do you think, however, that Edwards recontextualized some of what Owen was doing and put it in a, an occasionalist neoplatonic Cambridge Platonist context in which Owen wasn't really working. Well, they're definitely working in different contexts. I guess I'd have to have you tease out how you see that happening in the book on religious affection. Yeah, that, but, we can talk yeah, about that yeah. after yeah, the yeah. show. So that's interesting because yeah. uh, I've actually been having a discussion about that, the connection between Owen and Edwards, because mm. there are, I agree, there are formal connections. What I wonder about is the degree to which those connections are either identities right, right. or substantially the same. Because one of the things that I tried to argue in Recovering the Reformed Confession is that I don't think Owen would, I don't think I said it this way, but I don't think Owen would have written religious affections mm. in quite the same way. Because there's no question Owen is very much interested in religious affections, but would he have set up these tests the way Edwards did? And how would he have viewed, for example, the Northampton Revival? Well, Owen does set up actual tests, and he calls them tests. Yes. And he's drawing from First John on that. Sure. And the tests start to sound similar. But I still think you're right. Historically, this is an interesting question. Is it similarity or is there dependence? Or not? And dependence would be very and then hard to how, how does the context change yeah. from the middle of and the 17th does. century to the first part of the 18th century when there are ideas and questions and influences afloat yep. that Owen didn't really have to yep. face, at least I, not in the same way? And I would say, and this, this can get me into trouble, but— <laughs> 
<laughs> but I actually think that Owen is a far more, this is going to sound problematic, but far more biblical than Edwards. I mean, Owen is just so saturated in the text. Edward yeah. knows the he, text. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but Edwards is more philosophical. Yeah. The, it, Edwards, no, brilliant. More I philosophical. Agree. Owen is more exegetical. That's my perception of no. almost all of the 17th century Orthodox is that if you read them carefully, they're working either with Scripture directly or much of it's much plainer. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, philosophically, they live in a world of basically what we would call common sense realism of some kind, universal sense perception. And to the degree that Edwards is, as a lot of modern scholarship suggests, rationalist in some sense, occasionalist and Platonist, he lives in a very different epistemological world. That's one of the biggest differences. In a broad terms, I like to think of the 17th century guys as, and a lot of the 16th century fellows as Aristotelians, Christian Aristotelians, mm-hmm. and Edwards is a Christian Platonist in some ways, which I think is, as I see things, a fairly significant difference. I need to do more reading in your, I'm looking forward to reading your books. I have started one of them, but I, I confess I didn't get very far. But I'm. That is a damning criticism. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> It's not. It, well, yeah, no, no, it's it wasn't okay. your book. It's it's my uh, own uh, lack of discipline. And, no, that's okay. And, and, Amazon sales just and, hit and bottom work, right there. <laughs> and workload. No, you. Yeah, I, yeah. I highly recommend these books. I have looked at them. Well, Owen is this very important figure for many modern neo-Puritans, people who identify with the Puritan movement, and he is the person who becomes a bridge or an entry point into Reformed theology for a lot of people. But Owen, unlike some other writers, is not necessarily the easiest fellow to read, and <laughs> yeah. he didn't write short treatises, at least not that I have found. When in our Reformed Scholasticism course, I assign his catechisms because those are the mm. smaller things that I can assign that won't cause a revolt by students. Mm -hmm. Where do you think people should start if they say, you know, I want to read Owen, I want to get to know him, where do I start? I'll tell you where most do start, and I'll tell you where I would prefer they start. Most people start with Owen's short book on mortification of sin. Mm. It's a very practical, helpful book. Mortification is the idea of putting sin to death in us. And the opposite of that is? Is vivification, being made alive by the Spirit. Mm. So Owen is going to unpack some of this, but mortification is a shorter book, and it's very practical, and it's amazing how people read that. And Justin Taylor and I have put that together with a book on temptation, very practical, and a book on what are our three mortification? temptation, and indwelling sin, the Mm. idea that sin remains in believers. That is the entryway that most get into Owen. I would prefer that's a second. I actually think that Owen is best encountered through his book on communion with God, or we retitle it Communion with the Triune God because it's a long 17th century title. But the idea that we commune with God, and that means communion with the Father, communion with the Son, communion with the Spirit, distinctly but inseparably. If people just read the first 20 pages of how he talks about communion with the Father, I found it just changes people. Mm. And the danger with taking his books on dealing with sin, apart from that larger yeah, canvas, yeah. is it can be misunderstood as kind of a to-do list. Legalism. A legalism, which he never intended. So I kind of prefer them, let them hear Owen talk about God Hmm. and what he's done, and then start to understand the temptation and dealing with sin in light of that. I think that's a proper way to understand him. Isn't it interesting that Owen doesn't seem or didn't seem to have any problem keeping together the federal, the legal, the relational, all of these categories that we, in our time, seem to have so much difficulty keeping together. Mm. So you have people juxtaposing, well, you've made Christianity legal, and we have a relational view of the faith. For Owen, all these things are true simultaneously, and they're complementary of each other. Is that right, or am I missing that? Yeah, Owen is using all of these kind of categories and blending them together. I created a cumbersome term, and it's not very good, but I argue that Owen's theology is anthropocensitive. Hmm. 
anthropos, human, man, yeah. Yeah. and sensitive. We can, you know, to be sensitive. And the argument there is Owen's theology is not anthropology. It's not from below. It's mm. not just about us. But sometimes we say, yeah, no, 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 it's from above. But the fact is Owen's theology always has this experiential side to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's anthroposensitive. It's constantly this, it's not just, here's the theology, let's figure out the pastoral implications. It is, here's the theology, he works the pastoral implications, and then it comes back and reforms and informs his theology. So there's a bit of a dynamic there that I don't think we always do. I think we just think theology then work out the practice. And what he's doing is trying to figure it out. And that's his doctrine of the father. He realizes we have something messed up here because we think the father's just wrathful and angry Mm. and Jesus loves us, which forces him to rethink how we talk about the father. Owen was a pastor and he dealt with doubting sinners. And he himself doubted. Yeah, that's where he struggled. He had his own, exactly. So here you have this brilliant intellect who's mm-hmm. vice chancellor of the University of Oxford, dean of Christ Church yep. Cathedral, and right in the center of monumental events in 17th mm-hmm. century England, Civil War, England in church polity debates between the Presbyterians and yep. the Independents and the Episcopalians. And yet here's a guy who had his own real relationship with God, a personal vital relationship, and faced a lot of the same spiritual struggles that we all face. So he's a real flesh and blood human being yep. and not just some talking head spewing out uh, information. Yep. There is even some movement in how Owen works. He yeah. kind of, as a young man, starts out with a higher view of rationality, mm. and he loses his work at, at Oxford and other mm. things, and he finds he's got he's more questioning even of rationality, and then it balances out a little bit at the end. But I think that journey is a healthy one to take mm. and to understand. From Westminster Seminary, California. Let me switch topics here just for a minute. I want to turn back and look at your work as a college professor. You're teaching young people in a Christian college who are coming from a variety of different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. How are you mediating this kind of stuff to them, and how are they receiving it? And I guess I have a broader question. What's happening in the world of Christian higher education at the college level? It's exciting. Every student at Covenant College takes a year of theology. We call it Doctrine 1 and 2. And I have students, and I always laugh, I have some percentage of students that are resentful. They have to be in a class like that, think Mm -hmm. theology is terrible. In fact, some of them don't like theology because it is associated with people who use theology in very problematic ways. Mm. Love theology, but they were very mean to people, or they neglected their mom, even as they loved the theology. So you deal with that. On the other hand, I sometimes have students that they think their job is to teach me theology, which is always fun. (laughs) But what I absolutely love is by the end of the semester, it is amazing how many students all of a sudden connect how significant theology is to their life. My female students are some of my absolute best students because all of a sudden theology is not a, a male thing. It is something for the people of God because it has to do with God, the God they worship and how they live. So it's invigorating. And I love it. I love dealing with 20-year-olds because they're not yet jaded. They're open and it impacts their whole lives. What do you find in them as they come to you? What is the state of the spirituality of the 20-year-olds whom you're finding in your theology classes? Sometimes I'm asked, what is it I like about covenant, which relates? And I always say the zeal. You know, the students, there are brighter students other places, although I have some very bright students. But I'm consistently impressed with their zeal. They love Christ. This is not universal, but they love Christ. They want to know what it matters, but they also want to know how it affects their lives. And they're not making these choices between good theology and social action or these kind of things. For them, they don't have the problem of trying to put these things together. I think it's just an exciting time to see them make connections with the reality of the gospel and then how that works itself out in the life of the church and for the world. What would you say 
to Christian parents to help them decide where to send their kids. There's a lot that goes into that. But one thing I would say, I do think it's a lot more than the classroom. You have to think about the context. I do think the years 18 to 22 are incredibly formative. But one of the things I would say is I find that Christians that go to secular, and I'm not one to bash secular universities, but this has just been my experience. Christian students that go to secular universities, one of two tendencies tends to happen. On the one hand, they're so suspicious of their professors, everything they say they don't listen to or embrace. Therefore, it's as if they get no education. When the fact is a lot of what they're saying is really good and helpful, but because they've cast it in suspicion. On the other hand, students will go there and after a while they just embrace everything uncritically because they don't have the background or tools. Neither of those are good educationally. So ideally, I think uh, liberal arts Christian education makes a lot of sense to me more than even postgraduate because you're exposing students to the best scholarship in the disciplines that you can have good Christian philosophers who are saying, no, you really need to listen to Derrida and Foucault. Here are the critiques. But then who can engage and say, here are the problem. Here are at least, you know, even if they can't solve it all, they can say, here are questions be raised. So I actually think even educationally, it's not just about protecting your kids. I think educationally, it can be a very rich environment. If parents are thinking about where to send their kids, how can they contact the folks at Covenant College? <laughs> I don't have a bell to ring, but uh, <laughs> the best is just to go to www.covenant.edu. So covenant.edu yep. and then go to the admissions. Say CapEx sent you. How about right. that? I don't get any commission, <laughs> but you know. And who's, who's the uh, director of admissions? Matthew Bryant right now. But there's a whole crew of people there. We do visits, all kinds of things. It's great. Well, my good friend, my dear friend, Bill Davis, teaches in the philosophy department. And he is very good. So if you're looking for someone to shepherd your child through the maze of both ancient and modern philosophy, you can look to Bill for that and then go see Kelly and and he will get you squared away. (laughs) Give you the tools anyway to work through the theological questions. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.